If I had $1,000 and I put it in your bank account, I've credited it to you. I've reckoned it to you. It's a financial term. And that's the word that's being used here. So Abraham, we're told in the book of Genesis, believed God and it was reckoned, it was credited, it was imputed to him the very same righteousness that God has. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching program of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we move into chapter 4 today in a message entitled, The Salvation of Father Abraham. Having shown his readers the natural depravity of man and the inability for man to save himself, the Apostle Paul now gives his Jewish audience an example that they'll be able to relate, that of the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham. Just as believers today look back at a risen Savior, those who were justified in the Old Testament days looked forward to a coming Messiah. This was true of Abraham, who the Bible tells us believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 4. It's one of the great chapters in the Bible that describes salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The word faith appears 16 times in this chapter, underscoring the importance of your faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, as we examined last time, there are some who think there's a conflict between the Apostle Paul and James. But we learned last time there is no conflict, that they're in perfect agreement. Nevertheless, we've discovered that while some people believe in salvation by faith, they do not believe in salvation by faith alone. And the word alone, I suppose, is really the watershed that divides the Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. And so sola fide is one of the five watchwords printed on the stained glass window behind you five watchwords of the Protestant Reformation. We studied that the Roman Catholic believes in salvation by faith, but not salvation by faith alone. We learned that they believe in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the value of the blood alone. While the Roman Catholic Church accepts Christ as a mediator, they do not believe he alone is the mediator. While they acknowledge the authority of Scripture, They do not believe that Scripture alone, sola scriptura in Latin, is our final authority. And so these are important things that we're studying. And Romans chapter 4 is a reminder that we are saved by grace through faith alone apart from any works. Now before we read our text, since we're going to be here for several weeks as we crack a new chapter in our study, let me just give you an overview so you know where we're going. In verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul illustrates that neither Abraham nor King David were saved by any works. And then when you come to verses 9 through 12, he demonstrates that Abraham was not saved by circumcision. Something that was very important for a Jew, especially to understand in that century, which has great application for us in other realms in this century. Then in verses 13 through 17, he demonstrates that Abraham was not saved by any obedience to any given law that God had given. And then in verses 18 to 25, he reminds us that Abraham was saved by faith alone 
in Christ alone. So that's the overview of the chapter. Let's read our text this morning, Romans chapter 4. I hope you found it beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, ask me. The scripture, most of it anyway, will be on the screen this morning. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The body of John Milton Gregory is buried on the campus at the University of Illinois in Urbana, where that famous missions conference is held every three years. But his legacy lives on in his writings. He wrote a classic book that has been resurrected in a number of new books from the last, I suppose, two decades by Christian authors, but it was really original with him. It's called The Seven Laws of Teaching. And in that book, he articulates different principles that are necessary for one to be successful. And the principles, I suppose, in one sense are not unique to him because they come right out of the scripture itself from the master teacher, the Lord Jesus. But in that book, the fourth law of teaching, he says this, and I quote, the truth to be taught must be learned through the truth already known. Let me say that again. The truth to be taught must be learned through the truth already known. In other words, you teach something that is new and unfamiliar through something that is old and familiar. You just don't dump knowledge in a mass on people's heads, but you relate it to other things. And that's what Paul does here in Romans 4. Romans 4 is linked to Romans chapter 3. Now to many first century Jews, Paul's idea of being saved by grace through faith apart from circumcision or any works or anything you can imagine sounded like something new. But Paul wants to demonstrate that this was not a new truth, that this is an old truth. And so like a good teacher, Paul illustrates what he's taught in Romans 3 through some Old Testament illustrations. Again, if you are a teacher, you know that one way for people sometimes to grasp a truth is to illustrate the truth, and that's precisely what Paul did. In the 19th century, there was a very famous Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he said, the sermon is the house and the illustrations are the window to let the light in. The illustrations are the window that lets the light in, and so Paul lets some light in, and he illustrates further. Again, he's copying what Jesus did. Jesus told many parables. He took uh, familiar things to teach truth. Then, of course, Paul's writing, not under his own power, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God, the Holy Spirit himself, is called the teacher in Scripture. And so Abraham, who lives 2,000 years before the book of Romans was ever written, demonstrates that what Paul is teaching is not something new, but it's as old as Abraham. It's actually as old as Adam. That God has only had one way of saving people. If you remember Romans 3, 28, don't let the chapter and verse division throw you off. Those are artificial, added by men to help us to get around. But if you look at Romans 3, 28, he said, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, many highly religious people in Paul's day would take great objection to that. And people have not really changed in some 2,000 years. The religion out there in the street is that if you want to go to heaven, you're going to get to heaven by the things that you do. 
And so Paul is going to illustrate from the Old Testament that God has only had one way throughout all time of saving people by grace alone, through faith alone. That there's not a single individual in the history of the world that has ever been saved by good works. Anyone who goes to heaven, whether it was before the law, whether it was during the time of the Mosaic law, whether it was during the church age or during the time of the great tribulation or the millennial kingdom or any other conceivable age that you can think of that is unveiled for us in scripture, has only gone to heaven because they have exercised faith in Jesus as Messiah. And if you don't believe that, I hope to convince you before we're done with Romans chapter 4. If there was any other possible way for God to save an individual apart from Calvary, then Golgotha was the blunder of the ages. But it was not. And Paul's going to prove that God's anger can only be appeased or propitiated through the innocent, sinless offering of Jesus Christ. And to prove that initially, he's got to go to Israel's most illustrious patriarch, Abraham, and Israel's most illustrious king, most valued and esteemed king, namely David. And I find that very interesting because when Matthew opens his gospel to prove that Jesus is Messiah, he starts with the same two people. He opens his gospel with the words, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David, hands down, were Israel's two greatest heroes. And so if Paul can convince the Jewish people in his day and to help the church as an argument as they witness that, this is the, that these two men were saved on this basis of faith alone apart from any works, if he can demonstrate that these two great men were saved on this basis, then he is given a strong unbreakable argument that that's the only way God can save people. All right? Now, if you care to use your note-taking outline there in your bulletin for further reflection, just a few simple points. First, the illustration of Abraham's faith. Point one in your outline, the illustration of Abraham's faith. Notice how the chapter opens. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Now, unfortunately, if you're using the New International Version, those words according to the flesh are not even there. But it's in every Greek manuscript. It's not in some manuscripts and, and left out in others. It's in every manuscript. And this is why I tell you, if you really want to study the Bible, I mean study it, you need a Bible that is not just going for readability, but one that is also going for literalness. You need a more literal Bible. The first major translation would be like the Geneva, the King James to do that. Today in our day, it would be a translation like the New American Standard. And so... Paul wants to make the Jew know that it's not enough to be according to the flesh of Abraham. It's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. You have to have the faith of Abraham. And one reason that Paul illustrates with Abraham is because Abraham was the forefather of the nation. He was the progenitor of the, na progenitor of the nation. When we come down to verse 11, he will call him the father of all who believe. And so what must be true of all of his faith descendants will be true of Abraham. If you are truly of the faith of Abraham, then you'll have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. So you want to understand, well, what was it that Abraham believed? If I want him to be my model, what did he believe? What did he grasp? How was Abraham saved? What did he discover concerning this way of salvation? And again, if anyone was considered chief of the Old Testament saints, it was this man, Abraham. After all, if you remember, he is given the unique title of being called the friend 
of God. He's called the friend of God. In 2 Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat prays this. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Yes, he did. God uh, is quoted by the prophet Isaiah with these words. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. And then a third time in the Bible, in the New Testament, it says Abraham was called the friend of God. I mean, can you imagine having that title? Today, people love to drop names and tell us who they know or who they met or who they rub shoulders with. But there is no greater title in all of the history of the world than to be given the title the friend of God. Now you may be asking, is that a unique title that only Abraham can have? No, it's not. Because Jesus will say in John 15 that he will lay down his life for his friends. And so if you've embraced the cross, then you too are considered a friend of God. So how did Abraham become God's friend? If we can figure that out, then we can become God's friend as well, and we can help other people to become friends of God. What exactly did our ancestor, according to natural descent, as one translation renders it, what exactly did Abraham, according to the flesh, discover in this way of salvation? And again, if he was saved by works, then we're all saved by works. If he's saved apart from works, then we're all saved apart from works. And so Paul asks kind of a theoretical question, a what-if question. He says, let's pretend in essence, let's assume when he says here in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. The King James says he has something to glory about. Another translation says he has something to brag about. But then he quickly adds, but not before God. He's using the best human example he can find because if anyone could have been saved by works, then it was this man, Abraham, their hero. But Abraham had no basis for gloating, no basis for bragging, no basis for glory, no basis at all. Now, some people boast, and they will tell you about the things they've done, and it's on this basis they assume they are going to heaven. And one of the reasons they boast is because they think they're good enough, and they don't really want to have to come to grips with the fact that God says they're not good enough. That man's heart is desperately by nature wicked. And so this gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone shatters all boasting. And it gives all honor to God. Paul will write in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It, your salvation, this whole by grace through faith process is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. He will tell the Corinthians, but by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, the world is full of people who basically say, I'm a good person. And God undercuts all human boasting when you truly understand the gospel. So in essence, Paul is saying, let's Let's not pretend that he was saved by good works. Let's go to the scripture and let's see what the Bible says. Verse 3 begins with a question. For what does the scripture say? Now that seems like a very innocent question. But if you ponder it and meditate on it for just a moment, it's a really powerful question. First, 
He does not say, what has the Scripture said? But what does the Scripture say? Because to Paul, the Bible is not a dead book. It is a living book. It speaks with the same authority in this century as it did in the first century or in all the centuries before. And notice, too, he does not say, what does the Scripture say? But what does the Scripture say? Just like our word Bible. When we speak of the Bible, we're really talking about 67 books. And when Paul says, what does the Scripture say? He sees the, 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 the Scriptures as a unity, as a whole, that it was written by one God and it is all equally authoritative. And then third, of course, even to uh, answer this question, in his opinion, there's only one authority. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Again, one of the five watchwords of the Protestant Reformation. And so like the uh, Pharisees who would come to Jesus and question him, he would repeatedly just say, well, what does the Bible say? What do the Scriptures teach? What does the Scripture say? And so for Paul, like the Lord Jesus, the final court of all authority is the Bible itself. It didn't matter to Paul what his Jewish contemporaries thought. It didn't matter to Paul what the popular scholars held. It didn't matter to Paul what different men espoused in his day. The only thing that mattered to him is what does the Scripture say? And really, that's all that should matter to you. God could care less what you think in terms of your opinion. The only thing he cares about is what does the Scripture say? And by the way, this is a huge problem, both outside the church and inside the church. Outside the church because people just want to give their opinion as if it's authoritative. And it's a huge problem inside the church because more and more people don't know what the Scripture says. You ask a person about just any topic you can think of and they will be quick to give an answer. When you ask people in the church, they'll be quick to give the answer. And sometimes you say, well, but what does the Bible say? And more often than not, they say, well, I don't really know what it says. And, you know, I'm not a biblical expert. And so today we have these uh, Bible studies where people sit around and they talk about what the Bible means to them. God could care less what the Bible means to you. He's interested in what the Bible means to him. And when you understand what the Bible means what he said in its original context, then and only then can you make a proper application as to what it should mean to you. And so I think, in my opinion, the new liberalism in our day are many of these mega church pastors who just give little snippets of verses, very often out of context. One of these guys amazes me because he'll use the same verse to teach about five different things. I'm like, good night. Open the scriptures, read it in context. Don't come up with what you want it to mean. So one famous megachurch pastor said, look, unless your church has a vision, they'll perish. What's your vision statement? Give me your vision statement. The verse is totally torn out of context. When Proverbs says where there is no vision, the people perish, he's talking about revelation. Where there is no scripture, when God doesn't speak, the people dry up and perish. 
Every church should have the same mission statement in essence because God hasn't given a multiplicity of missions. He's given one mission. Now, there's different ministries, but there's one mission that God has given his people. I've met people, homosexual people. I met people who are adulterers, who are involved in extramarital sex, single people who are engaged in premarital sex, and they'll tell me, oh, it's fine, you know, God approves of what I'm doing. And they've told me that God has given them a confirmation in their heart that everything is just fine. I spoke to a man not long ago who listens to me in my radio ministry, and he was in crisis, so he called for a counseling appointment, and he revealed to me, I hold these Bible studies, and every week after the Bible study, a woman spends the night with me. And I've met people who are living with people who aren't their spouses, and before they go to bed, they read the Bible and they pray. Listen, what is important is what the Scripture says. How do you become a friend of God? What does the Scripture say? How are you to be forgiven? What does the Scripture say? How do you get your conscience cleansed? What does the Scripture say? How do you get to heaven? What does the Bible say? And so what does the Bible say about being saved apart from works? And so Paul quotes the scripture. Notice Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now he's already stated this truth back in Romans 3.21. If you look on the prior page in your Bibles, look at verse 21. Paul says, But now apart from the law... That is, apart from any good deeds that you can do, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, and that's what you need if you want to go to heaven. You need the righteousness of God. You need the perfection of God because you cannot violate his holiness. He will not allow anything into his heaven that will defile it. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So for the need... For righteousness that comes back, that comes apart from the, uh, from the law, apart from any obedience, is not something new, Paul is saying. It's something old. It's something that has been manifested. It is something that has been revealed. It is something that has been made known, depending on your translation. And remember, again, at this point in human history, when they referred to their Bibles, they didn't call it Old Testament, New Testament. They call the Old Testament the Law and the Prophets. That was the summary. Or sometimes they call it the Psalms, the Law and the Prophets. Again, the same three words summarizing all the Scripture. And so Paul wants us to understand, he's already stated it in Romans 3.21, that God in the Old Testament Scriptures saved people apart from deeds on the basis of grace. God doesn't have one plan of salvation for the Old Testament saints and a new plan of salvation for the New Testament saints. And to prove it, he illustrates with Abraham. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you're using the old New American Standard, it says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The King James ESV says it's counted to him as righteousness. The new New American Standard says it's credited to him as righteousness. Now, the Apostle Paul, five times in six verses, and 11 times in this chapter, uses this word credited or reckoned. Now, in some English translations, because they don't want it to sound too monotonous, they'll use three or four different words. 
uh, as they go through the chapter. They use the word reckon or count or impute or credit. But in the Greek New Testament, there's one word used 11 times, and the New American Standard very precisely captures it. It's an accounting term in biblical days. When Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, he said this, If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Or you might translate it, reckon it to me. It's the same Greek word. It's like um, taking $1,000, if I had $1,000, and I put it in your bank account, I've credited it to you. I've reckoned it to you. It's a financial term. And that's the word that's being used here. So Abraham, we're told in the book of Genesis, believed God, and it was reckoned, it was credited, it was imputed to him, the very same righteousness that God has. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul is asking the question, how is Abraham justified? And in verse 3, he answers, Abraham believed God and he was justified or reckoned as righteous. Now, we've been talking about justification in chapter 3. And we saw it doesn't mean just as if you never sinned. That's maybe a better description of pardon. It carries the idea of not just being having your, your slate wiped clean, but then written on every page of your life, righteous. Righteous, righteous, credited to your account the same righteousness that God has. Now again, we need that because Paul has already been arguing that all, without exception, have sinned and fall short of that needed righteousness. And so because God is just, sin must be punished. And the God who set the penalty steps out of heaven through a miraculous birth where eternal deity takes on perfect sinless humanity and Christ becomes the propitiatory sacrifice. God gives of himself to save us from himself and the wrath that our sin invites is poured out in Jesus. And so in God's bookkeeping in Abraham's life, it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteous. Now, I don't want you to miss the importance of this theological word reckon or credited or whatever word you may have in your translation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul put it this way. He made him, and the he's and the him are clear. The father made Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin on our behalf. There on the cross. Our sin was laid on Christ. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become, because we weren't before, but it's what you need if you want to go to heaven, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So on the cross, God laid my sin, your sin on Christ. And when you come to faith, he credits you with the very righteousness that he himself has. Now, the Bible says all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused, or the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, on, on Messiah. It was a prophetic passage. Our sin is laid on Christ, and in exchange, when you come in faith, God gives you his righteousness. Now, the common descriptive term, as you know, I hope by now, from Romans 1 and verse 7, the common descriptive term in the New Testament that God uses to describe his people is that of saints. And the word hagios, or in the plural hagioi, means a holy or a separated one. Various church denominations have over the years twisted the definition of saint. 
but the Bible calls anyone who's trusted in the sufficiency of Christ for salvation a saint. And we'll pick up in our study of that tomorrow as we continue our message from Romans chapter 4, entitled, The Salvation of Father Abraham. To listen to this message in its entirety, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look up program ROM17. You can also listen to it through our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. And, of course, you can always call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the salvation of Father Abraham. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.